0: Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field
1: right now, out. He's fired.
0: He's fired! Trump the Bulgarian throws rhetorical red meat at his crowd.
1: With all the urgent issues, Korea, healthcare, why is the president even talking about NFL players and disinviting NBA players to the White House? It's not about free speech. They can do free speech on their own time. That this is about respect for the military. I mean, it's unfortunate that we have a a president who's Rhetoric is very divisive in this country.
0: The NFL has to work out their own problems. Their, uh, their numbers are way down, and I think
2: this is a big reason why their numbers are way down.
0: This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind.
1: And I'm Heather Cox Richardson.
0: Heather, is nothing sacred anymore in America? Look, I shouldn't think anything is free at this point from being corrupted by Donald Trump, and it's his tweets of deep division. Like, I'm a football fan. I mean, some people are insane about it. I'm not one of them. But look, I love football. I grew up with it. I love it now. Sports are a shared realm in American life where rich and poor, black and white, can get together around something, anything, other than the things that just eat up our lives as to how divided we are. And I feel like Trump bigfooted into this safe realm, safe. Look, we know there's deep divisions of race in all sports. But boy, we kept the seal on that pretty well, enough that I could be cheering next to somebody from a different race or class, and people could week after week, Sunday after Sunday on the football fields. So let's review a quick timeline. Because this whole little jumble is a little bit confusing. Last year, several football players led by then San Francisco 49er quarterback Colin Kaepernick took a knee during that national anthem at football games to protest the treatment of black people in the United States during that very difficult year last year with all the shootings and all the demonstrations. Kaepernick was out of a job after last football season, and who knows when he'll be hired again by anybody. But some players continued to kneel this season in protest. So that has been simmering in the background, not making headlines, but happening week after week, national anthem after national anthem, Sunday after Sunday for over a year. And then on Friday at a rally in Alabama, President Trump went on, the offensive, against the National Football League itself. Let's listen to a little bit more. Some owner's going to do that. He's going to say, that guy that
2: disrespects our flag, he's fired. And that owner, they don't know it. They don't know it. They're friends of mine, many of them. They don't know it. They'll be the most popular person for a week.
0: And then, of course, he went to Twitter. And attack the NFL more. For days, the man can't stop. I mean, he's up every night. I'm not sure what else he's thinking about. Most players, coaches, and owners united and told the president to stop trashing their league. They kneeled. They stood arm in arm or didn't take the field during the games on Sunday. Moving often in confusion, but certainly in moments of unison. Solidarity. Look, to Trump, politics and the presidency are a kind of game. In some ways, that's why I think he plays it so forcefully. He is unencumbered by some of the principles, even the ideologies that shape and guide other people. So while there is a possible humanitarian crisis in Puerto Rico, while Houston and Florida are still recovering, while North Korea is threatening nuclear war. Our president is in a Twitter feud with people who move a ball back and forth across the field of play. Heather, let's talk about the latest turn of I think what we can agree is the most divisive president in our lifetimes.
1: Well, you know, I'm fascinated by his attack on the NFL because I actually don't follow the game itself of football, but I follow the history of football and how what it says about American culture. So I truly have a historian's perspective on this and a political historian's perspective on this. And when I picked up my phone the other day and saw him going after the NFL, I thought, this is the first time he's made a mistake in the way he approaches his presidency, which, as you know, I always think is about him and about really about consolidating people behind him and taking on football. Is going into a realm where he has traditionally not been successful, and I don't think he reads that audience terribly well. And what I think he the where he tripped, I think, is that of course Trump has his own long history with the NFL. He tried to acquire the Buffalo Bills, and they wouldn't let him into their party. And back in the 1980s, he was part of the United States Football League, which nobody today remembers or maybe even has heard of because he was one of the key reasons that that football league failed to take. Take on the NFL and failed to be a success. And having that failure and that defeat hung around his neck from the world of football all these years has obviously really, really rankled.
0: Well, you know, I thought the same thing at first, that this was a huge error. He's taking on celebrities, athletic celebrities, each of them with their own constituencies and franchises, larger-than-life characters. That's what I thought day one. But by day three, I'm like, wow, what a mess. What a mess when you saw all the, the varied reactions, some of them not particularly coherent, where everyone's trying to figure out where they stand or what they meant or what they should have said and, and want to say.
1: Again, it's a huge distraction from what we should be looking at. But it's said to me that he's feeling very uneasy and losing control of his narrative.
0: Also, I think it's fair to say he is the conflator in chief. This is one of the things he does. He conflates a host of things that upsets the traditional arguments or debates. And so let's try to get our arms around some of the core issues here, try to distill them down. I want to play a soundbite because I think it should highlight an embedded hypocrisy here. On Tuesday, Trump's attorney general, Jeff Sessions, gave a speech about freedom of speech on college campuses. Let's take a listen.
1: Freedom of thought and speech on American campus are under attack. The American university was once the center of academic freedom, a place of robust debate, a forum for the competition of ideas. But it is transforming into an echo chamber of political correctness and homogeneous thought, a shelter for fragile egos. And isn't it great that on the same day that Sessions said that, that's the same day that Donald Trump tweeted that the NFL should, as he said set a rule that you can't kneel during our national anthem. Well, so much for free speech there. He's trying to constrain freedom of speech at football games at the same day as attorney general is saying that college campuses need to uh, to make sure that there is plenty of room for conservative free speech on them. And that to me, speaking of conflation, was, was, was really the takeaway of this moment or so far seems to me to be the takeaway because if you think about it, here you've got, sessions saying, well, college campuses shouldn't do that. In fact, we should be able to title sociology courses however we want, and conservatives should be allowed in that space and should actually be the spaces should be opened up to make sure those conservatives can come in. You should almost uh have a, almost an affirmative action position for conservatives on college campuses at the same time he's the, the that president trump is saying but you know we can't possibly intrude on the safe space of conservatives in football even by something so unobtrusive as a man kneeling for our national anthem which is of course protected by his free speech but also brings to mind the fact that the football uh, teams weren't even on the field for the National Anthem until 2009. So it's not like there's a long heritage here that we're overturning or anything. The guy went down on a knee. And a year later, Trump is bringing that up. So this this moment of what is free speech and who gets to determine it and where do you— draw the line between what the government can tell you to say, I think is really the central issue that's at stake with this. As far as the public is concerned, I think Trump is probably up to something else.
0: Well, look, let's go back to Richard Nixon. In those days, he's at the second half, if you will, of the Vietnam War. The country's torn to shreds. And Nixon tried to curtail free speech on the streets and the campuses. But Richard Reeves, uh, the journalist and historian, read something brilliant about how that goes from protecting the country first as Nixon's justification to curtail free speech to then protecting his government that becomes embattled during Watergate to protecting Nixon himself because this urge to curtail free speech often turns to be very personal for presidents. You see something similar which George W. Bush during the Iraq war You know, I'm a reporter during that period, and at some point a few months in, many reporters are getting together in Washington and saying, my God, just to ask basic questions I ask as a reporter, I'm being tagged as unpatriotic, a traitor, because what I'm doing is in a way exercising rights to speech in those impertinent questions. And George W. Bush, just like Richard Nixon, said, what can I do? To curtail this right, this First Amendment, it's inconvenient and may be undermining us at a time of war. Justifications, again and again, often circumstantial, often at a time of global conflict, to curtail this most fundamental First Amendment. Well, let's get to our guest this week. Isaac Chautner is a staff writer at Slate. He's the host of the podcast, I Have to Ask. His most recent piece is Politics and Sports is an American as Racism. Isaac, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, Isaac, decipher for us. Why do you think Trump is attacking the NFL? What's in his head here?
2: Well, it's interesting. I wouldn't quite phrase it as attacking the NFL. I mean, he did attack the NFL. He brought up even the fact that the NFL was getting soft. You weren't allowed to hit as hard because of new rules that have been put in place. But I think for most people who like Donald Trump, most of his admirers, they don't perceive what he's doing as attacking the NFL. They perceive him as attacking rich, pampered, black, black being the crucial word, athletes. And I, so so I think thinking about it that way is is probably more helpful if you want to understand what Trump is doing, because I think that this is the culture where he's been... Playing for five plus years, when he said that President Obama wasn't born in the United States and shouldn't have been a legitimate president, essentially, and I think it's it's more of just the same old game. And I I, I don't think his supporters perceive it as attacking the NFL.
0: Yeah, but you know what? Look, attacking Barack Obama is one thing. Attacking guys who often came up hard, who are icons, uh, posters on the wall of every twelve-year-old, people of consequence in the towns in which their teens reside. Why attack this group? I mean, this group has power,
2: real power. Well, that may be. And I I also think, though, I mean, maybe you're more optimistic than I am, but I think even in in football-loving America, where these often black athletes have your poster on your kid's wall or something, I still think that the racial dynamics are such that a lot of Americans, unfortunately, probably see rich black athletes as pampered elite figures who, you know, are disconnected and so on, and they don't understand the sacrifices that soldiers have made and why you should kneel for the flag. And they claim all of our police officers are murderers or whatever the propaganda of the week is. And so I I, I think I'm not saying it's the smartest attack Trump has ever made, although I do think probably a lot of people feel the way he does about kneeling for the flag. But but I do think despite football's popularity, it, it does fit into the larger culture war and racial war Trump is trying to continue.
1: One of the things that really jumped out to me about this is again, it seems to me he's taken on giants. And again, I always think it's about him trying to prove he's dominant, and he usually does it when he feels like he's weak and under attack. But what really jumped to mind for me were the black athletes in the past, in our history, who have made it into the history books and were extraordinarily controversial at the time, but also in retrospect popular for their protests. And I'm thinking about people like Muhammad Ali. He was an icon when I was a kid. And I knew a lot of people who didn't support the civil rights movement, but they supported him because they felt that he'd come up from nothing, the same way so many of these black athletes had. Or people like Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who gave the Black Power salute at the 1968 Olympics. In those cases, the presidents kept their mouths shut. In this case, Trump is in there putting uh, the protesters down.
2: Do you see anything here that we can learn from? I don't have polling data at my fingertips about what Americans thought about Muhammad Ali when he refused to go fight in the Vietnam War, which I think many people, including myself today, view as a heroic act of protest. But you at know, the I... time,
0: the country was deeply divided about it. I mean, they really were. And, and people were livid about Ali, livid across much of America.
2: No, I mean, I saw a Gallup poll that someone was tweeting out this weekend from 1961 saying, what do you think about people going down to the South and trying to register African-Americans to vote? This was in the country at the large, not the South. And it was something like 23% supported it and 61% said they were instigators who were trying to start trouble. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about American racial history is we have all these things in our past that were extremely controversial at the time. And then when we look back on them 50 years later, we say, oh, wasn't that great. But now the protesters are growing too far. So Martin Luther King, you know, why can't people be more like Martin Luther King, et cetera? It may be 40 years from now, people look back on Colin Kaepernick and say, this guy was incredibly heroic. He brought up this, these issues of police brutality. But I still think right now, even if these guys are athletes, the country is still extremely divided about this stuff. That's
1: a really good point, too, because, of course, Martin Luther King, one of the things that he did was he, as they say today, took a knee In favor of civil rights. So when people say, why aren't people more like Martin Luther King was? Well, actually, they are. Yeah. We talked a little bit about how these comments that Trump made about um, the NFL (laughs) players were racist. Do you want to unpack that a little bit for us and how race in sports has shown up in this moment?
2: Just two things about that. I mean, the first I would say is the the comments were racist. I'm saying not because of the specifics of what he said per se, but what he's clearly trying to do, which is instigate racial dislike. And I think you see that with Trump a lot, which is that I suppose someone could conceivably believe Barack Obama was not born in America. And that opinion could be based on misinformation, and I would not say, well, if it was misinformation, it's racism. Trump brought that up because he's trying to spark racial hatred. He did the same thing when he said that he saw Muslims cheering on 9-11 or wants to ban Muslims from the country, is that we know why he's doing these things. And that's the same thing with these comments. There's this long history of white resentment in this country for African Americans being perceived as privileged, which as crazy as that may sound to lots of people, including myself, to think of African Americans as privileged, that that is a constant trope. When you go back to affirmative action and the response to that, when you go back at welfare, even in slave times, one of the attitudes that was professed among white Southerners was that oh, we take care of our African-Americans in the South. They're privileged. All these poor whites, they're not taken care of. They're not given meals the way slaves are. This sort of nonsense. And so I do wonder the degree to which there is still white resentment for these guys, even if they can do amazing things on the football field and they're cheered for at the games. I, I think it's it's a double-edged sword.
0: But this goes back to Jack Johnson as heavyweight champion. These folks are Rorschach figures these black athletes who rise to triumph in sports over, in many cases, white people (laughs) and become uh, powerful in the culture. I think that there is a welter of confusion that probably is unexamined in the largely unexamined racial impulses of white Americans. And I think part of Trump's goal is to tear the Band-Aid off of much of that, which he's doing again and again and again, day by day. Look where we are now talking about this.
1: But but I still come back to why football players?
2: Well, first off, let me just say, I think there's, I think we, we all make the mistake, I've certainly made it many times, of interpreting Trump as being more rational or having a bigger plan for what he's actually doing than he does. My hunch is what happened is that he thought he would go after Colin Kaepernick at this rally, he went over the top, as he always does. It seemed like he was going after all athletes. So that that's my gut of what happened. I doubt that when Trump got up Friday night at that rally in Alabama, he thought, 48 hours from now, I'm going to be going after the entire professional sports world. I don't think that's what happened.
0: Isaac, thanks for your insights. Isaac Chautner is a staff writer at Slate Magazine and host of the podcast, I Have to Ask. Thanks, Isaac, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Heather, stand by. We're going to take a quick break. And we will be right back. All right, we're back. Heather, some people say that sports shouldn't be politicized, but in fact... Football has been politicized for some time, right? There's fascinating history here over the last 50 years. Uh, Help us. There is
1: fascinating history and fascinating enough that I've bothered to study it, which says something because I'm really not interested in the game itself. As somebody said, it's the two worst parts of American society. It's a combination of committee meetings and violence. (laughs) Um,
0: That's a very good line. Who owns that
2: line? (laughs)
1: The history of football in America is absolutely fascinating. There's great stories about it. But what is of interest right now in this moment of Trump's attack on the NFL players and possibly the NFL is the fact that football got wrapped into politics really dramatically in 1984. And the story behind that is that Al Haig, who was Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, briefly, advised a film that was made by John Milius. And John Milius is a conservative in Hollywood. He was a member of the NRA board. And he wanted to make um, a really sort of over-the-top, as he said later on, a jingoistic film. And he directed the movie Red Dawn. Red Dawn came out in 1984. And when it came out, it was the most violent movie, the most violent acts per minute to have been produced at the time. And Al Haig actually had a screening of it at the White House. And what's interesting about Red Dawn is it's the story of communists, Russians at the time, parachuting into a small town in Colorado. And the mayor of the. of the town is kind of a turncoat, and he basically sells out the town. But the people who save the town from the communists are the high school football team. They're right, called the right. Wolverines. And right. the Wolverines force out the communists. And what happened after Red Dawn is there was an enormous, it's almost a cult movie, there was an enormous period of, uh, of enlistment into the army. And the army realized that that movies and Later on, sporting events would be a good way to promote recruitment at a time when we don't have a draft. Well, where else do you get young men? You get young men in football stadiums. And we know from a report that two Republicans from Arizona, Jeff Flake, who we've had on the show, and John McCain, did a report in 2015 where they revealed the fact that, in fact, the Department of Defense had been paying football owners to promote the military during football games. They'd had flyovers. They have military parades. They really emphasize soldiering and the sacrifice for the troops. And that's a deliberate attempt to encourage recruiting.
0: Well, football is the most militaristic of the games. I mean, you've got a battalion versus a battalion, a company versus a company. Everyone sacrifices for the common good. You may get taken down, and so might the the offensive guard next to you but but the guy scores the touchdown, and that 's all that matters it 's one in which each individual sacrifices in real time in combat really uh, for the good of the of the team of the of the whole of an end that we agree about
1: when American football first took off and took power in American culture and American sport it was at the late the end of the late 19th century and it really takes off in part because of an attempt to Americanize American Indians Native Americans who the government wanted to take off the reservations and turn into good American citizens as they saw them and it's actually at
0: and good American soldiers
1: and good American soldiers and it actually starts at I mean, football starts in a number of places, but it really takes off at Carlisle Indian School, which is a reservation back in Pennsylvania designed to get the Indians off the reservation and into an Americanized system. And the Carlisle Indian School was actually run by a Civil War general. And one of the things he wanted to do was to get the Indians into some sort of a regimented form. And, of course, at the time, Indians were known as being smaller than other Americans and as being very good runners. And what he figured he could do was encourage them to be militarized through games, and the game that he chose was football. And interestingly enough, those football teams really take off for the Carlisle Indian School when they get a new coach whose name is Glenn Warner, and he is our Pop Warner. And Pop Warner turns those Indian kids into such a powerful fighting force that they set up a couple of demonstration games against some of the best teams in the country, including Cornell, but also West Point. So we actually have on a couple of occasions the Indians literally on the gridiron against the Army.
0: It's often said that that Carlisle Indian School really invented what we now call the forward pass in football because they know how to throw the ball and boy, they really were swift and they moved in a beautiful kind of unison. These were Native Americans who uh, had games within their culture that fit brilliantly and were executed brilliantly under the hand of Warner against those, those heavy militaristic models that Yale and Harvard were using at the time with those well-fed white fellas uh, of privilege. Uh, and, of course, it became culture. It became the culture war of that period in American life, in some ways no different from the ones we're seeing now.
1: And those teams were getting national attention. And the it is still legendary in American history. The Army Carlisle game of 1912 was the game where Jim Thorpe, the great, one of the greatest athletes in American history... Uh, played, I almost said fought, for Carlisle and played in that game against Dwight David Eisenhower.
0: Was that the game? There are games here where the Harvards and Yales changed the rules and kept trying to change the rules to prevail, to make sure the Carlisle Indian School didn't triumph again and again. That may have been one of those games. But the idea of Dwight Eisenhower and Jim Thorpe going head to head, boy... Uh, you know, history just a moment like that lives like you're sitting right next to those guys.
1: The refs often jiggered the scores so that the Indians would lose. But I'm pretty sure in the 1912 game, the Carlisle School cleaned up over West Point.
0: So so what I think what's interesting, Heather, is that the notion that sports and politics are distinct from one another, I think we're, we're clear and agreeing that ain't the case. Heather Cox Richardson, always good to chat
1: it's always fun ron
0: (laughs) i'm ron suscine and this is freak out and carry on thanks for listening
1: if you haven't already subscribe to us on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review it helps others find the show
0: follow us on facebook and twitter at freak out carry on visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout our email address is freakout and carry on at wbur.org our
1: show is produced by wbur in boston we're produced and edited by katherine brewer our technical director is matt reed our executive producer is iris adler music for the podcast courtesy of apm The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.